Hello, and welcome to Fatal Films, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will look at a movie or TV show written, directed, or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In this episode, we look at the 1945 film Mildred Pierce, directed by Michael Curtiz, screenplay by Randall McDougall, based on the book by James M. Kane, starring Joan Crawford, Jack Carson, Zachary Scott, Eve Arden, and Anne Blythe. To get us started, here is a synopsis. A hardworking mother sets in motion a string of events that ultimately lead to murder, all in an effort to please her daughter. Trigger warnings for this episode are gun violence, emotional, and psychological abuse. We want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We go in depth on every aspect of the plot, so if you care about that, go watch the movie and come back. We will be waiting. So to drop it into history a little bit, this movie opened in 1945. That year, Pepe Le Pew debuted in a Warner Brothers cartoon, Adorable Kitty. George Nissen of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, received the patent for the first modern trampoline. Franklin D. Roosevelt was sworn in for an unprecedented fourth term as U.S. president. The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams premiered in New York City. World War II ended with the unconditional surrender of the Axis powers on May 8, 1945. The number one movie was The Bells of St. Mary's, and the number one song was Sentimental Journey by Les Brown and Doris Day. And today we have with us a very special guest, Mr. Andy Wolverton. Hi, Andy. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so happy to have you on. I've been wanting to for a while, and uh, yeah, I'm happy that you were able to be here with us. Me too. Andy is a film noir expert. Um, We were able to connect at Noir City in San Francisco in 2019, and that was such a fun time. We went on a Hitchcock tour and just had a great time there. It was my first year to go, but you'd been there before, right? Yeah, it was my uh, it was my fourth time, and uh, yeah, we did we did have a great time there, and it's always. it's always fun to welcome somebody that it's their first noir city because I remember when I was, uh, it was mine and there were people that said, let me show you around. So it was a lot of fun. I'm hoping that if they have the one in DC this year, we'll be able to go to that and then maybe we can hang out some more, but who knows what's going to happen the rest of this year. September seems so far away and yet so close at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I well, I had to take a little uh, offense at calling me a film noir expert. I don't <laughs> consider myself an expert; just a big fan. Um, I, I am a librarian. I work for the Anne Arundel County, Maryland Public Library System, based in Annapolis, Maryland. Currently working from home, I do a or I did a monthly movie discussion group at the library, which we don't do now, obviously. But I do a weekly online discussion group which is a lot of fun. I also write for a publication called The Dark Pages Newsletter for film noir lovers. So even though we're um, quarantined at home, I'm pretty much staying busy. I know a lot of people have said they're really bored, but I've had more than enough stuff to keep me busy during this time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's so much, um, well, so many movies to watch for one thing. No kidding. As I said earlier, we are talking about Mildred Pierce. How did you first come to this movie? You know, I think I probably saw this for the first time when I was a teenager, and I probably sat down and watched it with my mom, who was a huge classic movie fan. 
Uh, although I bet I probably came in like after the first 10 minutes <laughs> because if I'd seen that opening, uh, I probably would have been a lot more interested than I was. I rediscovered the movie about maybe 10 years ago and really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, this is a, a two-part special pick. It's our Mother's Day episode and also it is an honorary episode for our Nana's 96th birthday in May. She Well, May 8th she will be turning 96 and I came to this movie because of her. She just loved how evil Vita was and so she <laughs> always was talking about her and she's like, oh, you gotta watch that one. She's just, that girl is so bad and she um, <laughs> talked about the scene on the stairs where uh, Mildred tears up the check and then Vita slaps <laughs> her. And so that that's how that's how I knew about the movie. And the first time I watched it, I watched it with her. It was me, oh. Lacey, my mom, and my Nana. We all watched it together. That's great. That's wonderful. Happy Mother's Day to all moms out there in the world. We figured Mildred Pierce is one of the great moms of murder and mystery and mayhem, so we wanted to talk about her. A little bit before we jump into this movie, I read that most of the lead actresses of the day didn't want this part because of the implied age that they would have by playing the mom of a teenage daughter. Still that thing that you wanted to be young and not be the mom. They, they didn't want this part. And the director didn't want Joan Crawford for the part. He wanted Betty Davis. She didn't want to do it. He also wanted Barbara Stanwyck and she declined or wasn't able to do it. So he started looking at young actresses who were too young to play the part, like Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. I don't know if you have the Criterion edition of this movie or not, but there's some really great special features on that. And one mm -hmm. is an interview with Joan Crawford and one is mm -hmm. an interview with Anne Blythe. So that was really interesting to hear both of their perspectives on it because Joan Crawford said that she went in to do a test with the girls that they were thinking about to play Vita in hopes that she would get the part and they they meshed really well and the director finally came around to her. Whereas Anne Blythe said in her interview that Joan Crawford did it just like out of the goodness of her heart came in and screen tested with her. So it was like, well, it helped probably both of them get the part. It wasn't yeah. completely selfless on Joan Crawford's end. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the whole um, the whole thing doing some research, I discovered that the producer, Jerry Wald, was really behind Crawford getting the part. I mean, he had picked her up for Warner Brothers in 1944. And she, of course, Crawford had been with MGM for 18 years. So uh, he really wanted to sign her and Jack Warner agreed to it to sign Crawford but not at first like you said he looked at a lot of other actresses for this part he he even did the disservice of of hiring Crawford at like one third less of the salary that she'd been making at MGM. Warner, Warner thought, he said, uh, you know, she's a has-been. We're only going to use her because Stanwyck's too busy and she can't do it. Uh, but that, that really wasn't exactly true. Um, I think Stanwyck did want the part and Curtis wanted Stanwyck, but apparently Wald really, really pushed for Crawford from day one. You're right about the screen test, and the thing about 
the screen test was Warner insisted that uh, Joan Crawford do a screen test, which is kind of a slap in the face for somebody that had as much experience as she had. You know, she bit her tongue, she swallowed her pride, and she did the screen test, and Curtis was really blown away by it. Um, so, and you know what, and we'll talk about it more, I'm sure, but this was this was really a role that, that Crawford really, it was really tailor-made for her, and she knew it could turn her career around. She's so good in it, and I'm sure that there are other women that could have done the part wonderfully as well, but I just, I have a hard time imagining any anyone else besides mm-hmm. her. And also the fact that she had such a strained relationship with her own children, the fact that she's playing a mom that has, you know, a not great relationship with her daughter. It's like, oh, this this works out, you know, art imitating life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and you know, Crawford was also, um, you know, very much like Mildred. She was a tireless worker. She was a perfectionist constantly seeking approval. As as Imogen Smith says in her essay, uh, she throws herself into the work like an Olympian in training. And she really did. I mean, you can tell that, that Crawford, I mean, she I think she always gave her all in pretty much everything she did, but she's really uh, she's really hitting a home run here every time she steps in front of the camera. There are so many emotional scenes in this. She must have just been exhausted mm. filming it because she really goes there every time. Like like you s- see it in her eyes. Yeah, I, ca- I can't imagine how exhausting that was having to do that so much. Let's go ahead and we can jump in to the movie. So we start, the first part to me is kind of like a prologue because we get this set up of the murder, the shots being fired and the body falling. And of course, in the beginning, we don't know who it is. We don't know who fired the shots. We don't know where we are or anything. It's just like, bam, draw you in right away with this main event. As this man is dying, he utters the word Mildred, which of course at first makes us think, oh, she did it. And you see the car driving away from this absolutely fantastic beach house, which I'm very sorry to have read that it, I guess it fell into the ocean at mm. some point. And it's like, ah, oh, because I would love to see it. <laughs> Me too. And then we see this woman in a fur coat walking down this empty boardwalk and it's like all misty and it's just a really wonderful shot. And this policeman stops her from jumping over. We, we see her grab the railing and she's kind of starting to put her weight on it like she's going to pull herself up and he tells her, you know, if you take a swim, I have to take a swim, so let's neither one of us get pneumonia. And as she's walking away past this really busy, like, little nightclub there, somebody calls her in, and that's when we're really introduced to Mildred Pierce. And Wally, I think it's interesting, too, that he's one of the first characters that we meet as well, and he's just, he's just his usual smarmy self hitting on her right away and um he tells her i'm sorry that for what i did to you today but it's just business you know don't worry about it easy for him to say he wasn't the one who (laughs) lost his business right (laughs) but there's a lot of really beautiful shots in this opening and she takes him back to the beach house and through this banter between them we learn that okay she is married she said her husband's not around she's brought this guy back to the beach house and then she basically locks him in there and runs off 
the police find him as, as he's breaking out of the house. As Mildred gets home, her daughter is there with these two detectives. They won't tell her what's going on, but they take Mildred downtown to be questioned. And as they're leaving, they tell her, oh, your husband has been murdered, which her reaction is, it's really great. Because later we know that, of course, she knows about this, but it's so genuine at the moment that you think she doesn't know mm-hmm. anything i was just gonna say that that whole opening is just so good and it's so uh, you know at the beginning that you're in the middle of a bona fide film noir because you said that you've got uh you know so many great night scenes you've got the beach house you've got the sudden gunshots confusing spaces reflections camera angles all of that um and and actually in one of the extras on the criterion disc robert polito calls the beginning of this kind of a rosebud moment uh, saying, uh, who is Mildred Pierce? Because we really don't know. And it's kind of like a Citizen Kane uh, moment, like we don't really know who Charles Foster Kane is. But we, we do have that opening murder, and, you know, it sure looks like Mildred did it. Uh, she looks like the, the, the best candidate for it. And, you know, the, I, was, I was thinking about this, and I, I realized I think the cop talking to her, trying to prevent her from committing suicide, is the only man in the movie that's really good to Mildred. <laughs> He's trying to keep her from committing suicide, but mainly just so he won't have to call it in and clean it up. Yeah, there's so many great things going on um, in, in the house, and I love how Curtis has the uh, shadows, especially the way the water ripples on the ceiling. That is just that is just so good. I mean, that just creates such the perfect uh, atmosphere for that. So um, yeah, we've got a really really great great noirish uh, beginning here. Yeah, because I feel like that's where you know we have this really wonderful and it's it's rather quiet too. The whole setup. And up to the point where the detective calls her into the office and she starts telling her story. It's very, it's very, it's all very quiet. And especially because while she's sitting there waiting to be called in, they won't let her talk. And she keeps seeing all these people that she knows from her life, but they won't let her talk to any of them or them talk to her. I think one thing that I left out earlier was she kept saying to Wally, you can talk yourself out. Out of anything, which mm. I think is her reasoning why she thinks she can pin this murder on him because he'd be able to get out of it. Mm, um, mm-hmm. It's not a very well thought out plan, but I mean, I guess <laughs> in the moment, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's funny that, that she, she mentions that because like you said, in the police station, they don't allow her to say anything. But what I really like about that scene is the rest of the voices, like the cops that are working there, their voices start echoing. And it's like a surreal, really disorienting, dreamlike atmosphere. And the other sounds get magnified, like the tick- ticking of the clock, the rustling of the newspaper. And again, it, it feeds into that noir paranoia. But but yeah, you've got a great comment there about the, the way she and Wally are talking about it and the way he talks and then she's not able to talk. I like how they play with contrast in this movie. Um, between different characters and then of course you know with the noir light and dark and stuff like that but there's a lot of different instances throughout the movie like the two sisters you know the one is easygoing and the other isn't and there, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like opposites in one side of the coin or the other 
in this movie that I think makes things really stand out. She's brought into the, I guess, like, main detective's office, or I'm not really sure. It's an interesting setup for a police station. Yeah, it is. It's also one of the most quiet police stations I've ever seen in a movie. There's, like, no other suspects or arrests or crimes, you know, being investigated in there. So I thought that was interesting, too. Oh, the shot where they're bringing her up to the Hall of Justice. I really love that because it's like they walk out of this fog mm-hmm. and, you know, from the darkness to the light and... It's close up on that beautiful, like, logo that's in the ground there. And I just thought that that was a really cool shot that also kind of helps you make the transition from, like, the outside world to the police station. Like, oh, we're moving into something completely different now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But they tell her that, oh, we don't need you anymore. We figured out who did it. Sorry. She wants to know, okay, well, who do you think did it? And they bring in her first husband, Bert Pierce. At which point she says, no, no, he couldn't have done it. He's a very nice, gentle person. And they say, okay, well, tell us, how do you know he didn't do it? And and we start into the life story here, which immediately the music changes and the lighting changes. And we're into like this very idyllic life where it's sunny and she's cooking in the kitchen. And I love the line where she says, I feel like I was born in the kitchen. I was always there. I just left to get married and came back. Which I don't know if that's as much her saying, I loved being in the kitchen or I was trapped in the kitchen or maybe both. Yeah, you know, she doesn't really seem to be complaining that much about it. Maybe just stating a fact, but um, it's it's so believable, you know, and part of that, again, is Joan's Joan Crawford's performance. But you're right. I mean, the the tone of the film really changes there. Uh, a lot of people have said it moves from a film noir to a women's picture. I think a lot of people, in fact, I was talking, not talking, but watching people's reactions on Twitter. People, some people have said, I have a hard time thinking of this as a film noir. And I can kind of understand that just because that, that change, as you mentioned, is so abrupt there. Let's real quick for a minute talk about this because I love classic film, but I wasn't familiar with the term women's films or women's pictures before because I guess the idea of having to make movies that are like just for women seems so foreign to me because it's like well everybody watches movies like what's a a man's movie versus a woman's movie can I not watch action like and so I started looking into it and it's yeah there were these movies that were made like just for women that were about like domestic issues or I guess the women would have been a woman's picture as well because it obviously a man would never want to watch a story about uh, what women do I would I think that's a terrific picture yeah it is and so, like I said, I actually had to go look it up and be like, what, what is this? Because I never thought of Mildred Pierce as anything but a mystery or a film noir before, before I was familiar with that term. It was just, you know, like a mystery movie because there's a murderer and we figure out who did it and stuff. So this idea of a women's picture is kind of funny to me because I see everybody watching this movie, not just, like I said, only for women because it deals with a woman and her daughter and stuff like that. So yeah, very early we see what is going on with her marriage. And it's not good because her husband has lost his job. He doesn't seem particularly interested in finding another one, which I've 
been laid off before, I understand you go through a depression and you feel kind of bad about life when that happens. But he does have a family to support because in that time, of course, the man was the one who supported the family. But she's bringing in her own money by baking cakes and pies, and they get into a big fight about this dress that she bought for their oldest daughter, Vita. And that just seems to set everything off, probably something that's been in motion for a while now. And he's accusing her of throwing it up in his face that he can't support the family. And then he has a strange relationship with a neighbor lady, Mrs. Biederhoff, that I guess he plays bridge with. But it seems like, I don't know if they were having an affair or not, but it just seems a little strange. Yeah. (laughs) I think, too, that, that, you know, he has understood for a long time that Mildred is far more concerned about her daughters than she is him. Uh, That that's where her true love is, especially with Vita, as we'll we'll see through through the rest of the movie. But, yeah, you know, I'm not sure about that relationship. I... I haven't read the novel. Have you Have you read the novel? I haven't. I've read several of his other books, but I haven't gotten to that one yet. Yeah, me too. I've read um, a couple others. So I don't know if that was spelled out more in the book or not. Yeah, I would be interested to know about that because that's the first place that he goes. And then he's, it seems like maybe he's living with her after this breakup happens. So yeah, the, they must be pretty close. But, you know, maybe it is just to friendship maybe who knows but you're right her life is dedicated to her daughters and making sure that they get whatever they want especially Vita because they she says oh Kay doesn't need much thinking about and her husband said Kay is I can't remember the exact quote but basically she's a better person than Vita is yeah their marriage does break up and that evening Wally comes over to talk to Bert right away he's all over Mildred once he finds out that the marriage is over it just happened a few hours ago dude give it a rest (laughs) and yeah he literally takes his arm and like moves her out of the way so that he can come into the house when she goes up later that night to check on her daughters, Vita says, well, why don't you marry him? Then we can have a new house and we can have all this money. And Mildred quite frankly tells her, well, I don't love him. Would you rather me marry someone I don't love just so that we can have a new house? And Vita, in the beginning, you don't really see quite how manipulative she is, but you're starting to. And she's like, oh no, mother, it's okay. You know, I I really love you a lot, but let's not get sticky about it. I like that line. Yeah, yeah, that's a good line. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely see the seeds of, of the future Vita being uh, planted there, or, or they've probably already been planted for a long time. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting watching that character evolve throughout the film. I don't know if she's a sociopath or anything like that, but things don't really seem to bother her too much. Like when she finds out that her dad's not coming back, she's just very coolly like, oh, I agree with you, mother. I can't believe he'd be hanging out with that other woman. She's so middle class. Unless it's something involving her, she doesn't seem to care too much about it. Now Mildred has to get a job because you have to have money to eat. Everybody wants somebody with experience. So she ends up getting a job at this restaurant just kind of by chance. And that's where we meet 
the wonderful Eve Arden. She's playing Ida. Just right off the bat, you know, great interaction, really quick on the uptake. And she tells Mildred, well, I don't think you're up to the job, but let's give it a shot. And Mildred ends up becoming a really great waitress. She says, in three weeks, I was a good waitress. And in three months, I was the best waitress there. But she's always afraid that Vita's going to find out that she is a waitress. During the day, she works at the restaurant and at night she bakes pies. She bakes like 50 pies a night with one little (laughs) oven. I don't even know how she does that. Yeah, I mean, and she's got um, Butterfly McQueen there to help her a little bit, but um, she's there mostly for comic relief. But yeah, you you spend the entire day at the restaurant and then she's just got this pie factory going at night. And, uh, you know, you wonder how the woman sleeps. But but again, Crawford really does make it believable that she that she looks so tired from having done this. And I wonder I wonder what Crawford actually did to to do that. You know, I don't know if she just drank a lot of coffee or whatever it was on the set. But she makes it so believable uh, that that this is really her. Yeah, I know that there was an issue between her and the director because he kept saying that she was making her look too glamorous as a Uh housewife, like accused her of having the dresses altered and stuff, which apparently she did have them tailored for her, but they were, I guess, like casual or everyday wear that she was having fitted to her. Because of the way her hair and the lack of makeup and stuff, I see the transition from the housewife Mm -hmm. to the more glamorous, wealthy lady. I thought that was done really well. Like you said, she does. She looks tired of course her her reaction to this is oh it keeps me thin (laughs) which she is she has a very tiny waist and yeah she does she thrives in this job clearly her talents weren't being used by just being at home taking care of the kids because she quickly gets ahead for the business of running a restaurant by learning it. I mean, I don't know that that was her plan in the beginning, but once she, once Vita finds out that she is a waitress and she tells her one planning on opening a restaurant of my own, I think that's like her aha moment of like, oh yeah, I actually do want to open my own restaurant. And she proves to be very good at it. Let's take a minute and talk about Joan Crawford. We we covered another movie of hers, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, but we didn't, there was so much with that movie that we didn't get a chance to really get into her early life or anything. But she wanted to become a dancer. Apparently she was taking piano lessons and to escape the piano lessons, she jumped off her porch and cut her foot on a broken milk bottle and had to undergo three surgeries to repair the damage. And she was unable to attend her school or dance for 18 months. So I don't know if she ever really got back into that. Like, did she ever do any musicals? Or I, I, I don't know. I can't think of any off the top of my head. You know, I haven't seen her early, early stuff. So I'm not sure. Uh, I'm really deficient in her early, uh, early work from the 30s. And even even before. So I, I, I wish I could tell you. Okay, so yeah, that's something I'll have to look into. She did register for college, which is interesting because in the interview that I saw with her um, in the special features, she said that she stopped school at the sixth grade. Right, right. So I'm, I'm not sure if that's true or not. Have to do some more 
research into that. But like you said, she was with MGM for a very long time and was a huge star there. And I think it was interesting that they they had a contest to select her stage name. It's just, just such an interesting thing to me that, you know, she wasn't even allowed to pick her name. But she didn't like Crawford because she said it sounded like crawfish, which... Right. I can understand. Oh, yeah. So she wasn't happy with the size and quality of parts that she was getting. So she started a campaign to promote herself, which is actually really smart. They said no one decided to make Joan Crawford a star. Joan Crawford became a star because she decided to become a star. And that, yeah, that seems to fit right in with everything about her. Just hardworking and she's decided that she's going to do this. Yeah, and you know, in his book uh, *Dark City*, Eddie Muller talks about how Mildred Pierce, the character, just scratched the surface of Joan Crawford herself. I mean, like like you said, she really was committed to reinventing herself, or inventing herself at first, and then reinventing herself, and making not only Mildred Pierce come alive, but but. Joan Crawford come alive. I mean, here is a, um, you know, an ambitious ex-chorus girl. Uh, she knew Mil- Mildred Pierce. She'd lived that. And, uh, but yeah, like you said, she did have to make some changes. She had to become less glamorous for this role as Curtiz insisted on. She really was not Lucille Lassure anymore after after that uh, and, and never looked back. Yeah, I really like this quote, F- F. Scott Fitzgerald said about her, uh, he said, if you want to see the girl next door, go next door. Next door, yeah. Just, I can't think of anything that I've ever seen her in that I didn't like or that she wasn't just an absolute presence in. And, you know, this film really did kick off a really, uh, really impressive run of films after this, she did um, Humoresque, Possessed, uh, Daisy Kenyon, which is a really misunderstood film. Uh, and it's a lot better, I think, than a lot of people get a, give it credit for. Uh, Flamingo Road is a terrific film. The Damn Don't Cry, uh, Sudden Fear, another great noir, Autumn Leaves. I mean, she just had so many great films after this. And this, that Mildred Pierce was really the jumping off point, I think, for this resurgence in her career. Just some really terrific stuff. Well, it's so interesting to me that she did it twice. Like, with this, you know, because they were saying, oh, she's not as big of a star as she used to be. And then, of course, bam, with this. And then again, with whatever happened to Baby Jane, it was like every time mm-hmm. they start to go, ah, you're out, you know, you're not the thing anymore. She's like, uh-uh, here's a great part for me, boom. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she worked right up into the end. Uh, you, we can question some of the choices that she made in some of those uh, later movies, but she kept working. She was in demand. I mean, can you imagine a, a young Steven Spielberg with ma- her making that um, night gallery pilot, having getting to direct Joan Crawford, um, you know, Spielberg was probably, what, 25, 26? I mean, she she really kept going the whole time. I love that. And, and I know sometimes it's not a choice of an actor to stop working. They're not offered stuff. But I do love the people that, you know, you just keep seeing them do stuff on and on. But anyway, we will jump back to the movie. So she finds a place where she wants to open the restaurant. She goes to Wally because... She knows that he knows how to get these things done. I love the switch of his character with him of like, she comes in and he thinks, I guess she's coming to flirt or something. And then when she's like, no, this is business. then he's just like, oh, 
I've got it. It's business. We're doing business. And he sets up a meeting with the owner of the property, who turns out to be this very suave man about town. I love when she asks him what he does later on. He says he loafs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And her reaction to that is, is that all? Like, I I can't imagine in her mind being such a, you know, the character is so hardworking that he's like, eh, I don't do anything. It's fine. Um, The total, total opposite of what she's doing. Right. They set up this deal where she's going to make, she's going to take the property and if in a year she can pay him the amount that he wants, then the building is hers. If not, then he gets the building back with all the improvements that she's made to it. He's taken with her right away. You can, you can kind of see it. It's not over the top, but you know, she's a strong personality and I think he really responds to that. So as she's setting up the restaurant, he comes to visit her, invites her to go swimming and it's like oh come on take some time off it's fine so they do they have a really nice day and he tells her that he hasn't felt that connected to anybody in a long time but he has this closet full of swimsuits that are all her size so clearly he's had a lot of ladies out to this beach house yeah exactly And while she is having this really nice time with him, her daughter, Kay, she gets sick. And for me, it was really sad. I understand why this character had to go, but I really love the little girl who played her. The few scenes that she's in, especially the one where she's dressed up with like a shawl on and she's singing Mm -hmm. and dancing and Vita's playing the piano. It just, she's such a wonderful personality that I was really sad to lose her already. But I understand for the story why it had to happen but they were out with their dad for the weekend the only hint that we got that anything was wrong was as she was packing up she starts to cough And then this next scene is Bert trying to find Mildred because Kay is really sick. It's pneumonia. And he took her to Mrs. Biederhoff's house, which of course had to be like a slap in the face to Mildred. Mm -hmm. You didn't even bring her to her own house. You took her to that woman's house. And unfortunately, yeah, Kay doesn't make it out of this. But I wanted to ask you about the relationship with Vita and Kay because most of what Vita does seems very shallow, but I got the feeling that maybe her and Kay actually did have a pretty good relationship. Like there was some sisterly love and fun going on there. What what do you think about that relationship? I kind of wondered about that too. And I would like to read the book. That's one of the reasons I would like to read the book to see if that relationship has developed a little bit more. Of course, you see a lot of that in um, siblings who are, are have different interests, different personalities. Sometimes they really, really bond together really well, despite being so different. And I wondered about that. And again, I would like to explore the novel to see if that's fleshed out a little bit more. Maybe they had to not develop that as much. I mean, it was a 600-page novel. Uh, and a two-hour movie, so they probably had to make a few decisions, and that could have been one of them, but I would like to know more as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that too, because I, I did enjoy the scenes that the two girls had together. But ultimately, yeah, Kay isn't really needed for the rest of the story, because her death is what really pushes Mildred to just completely throw herself into the restaurant and making the restaurant a success. You know, if she wasn't driven before, she's triple driven now. And the restaurant is a success. That place is packed. 
she opens up several, um, I think five is what she said that she ends up opening up, which the movie takes place over four years. So to open up five restaurants in four years, that's some success. Uh, That's a lot of work. Yeah. (laughs) And of course now, you know, they have this money and Vita can have these things that she wants, singing lessons and dresses. And Monty has become much more of a fixture in their life. Which another thing I wanted to ask you about real quick, going back to Kay's death, one of the things that I read about it was that was her punishment for like Mm -hmm. this day that she had with Monty not being a moral woman. And that's why the censors let her get away with a lot of the other things that she did because she was punished by the death of her child. I don't know, which just seems seems very interesting to me. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, again, I would like to see if that was part of the book or if, like you said, that that was a production code lingo for here's her punishment for this romance with Monty. Definitely could be, uh, you know, and it's it's unusual that Hollywood figured out how to tone down a lot of Kane's novels for the screen, but yet you've got Mildred Pierce that inserts a murder that's not in the book, apparently, and, and all these other things that they added into it. Some of that for the production code, some of it to make it just a, a, a more more cinematic. But yeah, that's a good question that maybe, maybe that is her reason for the death of Kane. Through this, yeah, Monty is becoming more of a fixture in their life and Vita is very taken with him, you know, because he represents everything that she wants, that upper class, that lifelong coming from money, just all these things that she has dreamed about. And she comes up, this is another part that I'm kind of curious, I don't know if it's her plan or Wally's plan or if, you know, is Monty involved in this too because we he, he's never mentioned, where she marries this, this guy who is very wealthy and of course his mother is like, no, 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 this is not happening. And so when they go to get the marriage, I guess they probably couldn't get it annulled, but the divorce or however they are dissolving this marriage, she says that she's pregnant in order to get some money from them. And then of course, later we find out that she isn't. She says it's a matter of opinion and in her opinion, she is pregnant right now. This this is a breaking point for Mildred because Vita has sunk to this just level that she can't tolerate and she rips up the check for $10,000 and throws Vita out, which is kind of interesting to me with the character of Vita because to pull off a scam like that doesn't seem like a high class thing to do Mm -hmm. and she thinks of herself as so high class but I guess she wants the money so bad that basically being a con artist doesn't bother her Yeah, that, and, and you know, the, the funny thing about that, and I didn't think of it until I went back and watched the movie again, that earlier in the film, Mildred slaps Vita and immediately says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I did that. I'd rather cut off my own hand. You know, at, at that point, and especially once once Monty comes into the picture and she does this little pregnancy thing, boy, that is a real descent into total femme, femme fatale mode. And, and it's really weird that in film noir, you don't really see that many movies that have important roles for children, although she's really not a child at that point. But um, you really don't even see that many teenagers in film noir, um, at least not being that much of a, uh, you know, an evil conniving character. 
I think this is one of the things that Vita at this point really keeps this from, uh, if we want to call this a, a women's picture, and, and she brings it back into noir at that point. I mean, because we've had the noir opening, and then most of the film that we've had there, we can either call it a woman's picture or a drama. And now Vita, with this with this one act, has really kicked it back into noir territory with a vengeance. Yeah, like you said, she she is the femme fatale in this movie because she's just out for herself, conniving any way that she can get it, pretty much. That was just a really kind of interesting twist for me. And we find out, you know, that Wally is involved in it again. I don't know if Monty mm. was, but it seems like the type of thing he'd be fine with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mildred does tell Vita to get out. She even tells her that if she doesn't get out, she'll kill her, which mm. is some really strong emotions. There. <laughs> yeah. And she goes and she travels. I think she's gone for a month, they say, but but I'm not quite sure. Also, another question I have for you is, how old is Vita? You know, that's something I've been trying to figure out, too, because I know when she made the film, Anne Blythe was 16 or 17. So I'm wondering if, if Vita was about that age. She seems to be a little younger to me. And again, I, I'm not sure exactly how young she was supposed to have been at the beginning of the film. I think she's probably 15 or 16. What 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 do you think? Yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out because at, at a scene towards the end, I was like, wait, how is she? How old is this guy? Because she does seem, in the beginning, the way they have her dressed. Is she supposed to be 14 or 15, or is she supposed to be like 13? I'm I'm not sure. Um, And then, of course, you know, as they glam her up, she looks older, but I wasn't Mm -hmm. sure if at the end she was supposed to be like 18 or 19, or if she was supposed to be 16 there. Because she does get a car, so I'm assuming that she's at least 16 towards the end, but but I wasn't sure. Yeah, and you know, we we would probably find out, uh, of course, we don't know exactly what is going to happen to her at the end. Uh, You know, would she be tried as a juvenile or would she be tried as an adult? Um, So yeah, some of that is, I think, purposefully vague. Okay, I can see that, yeah. Mildred is traveling and when she does finally come back, Bert asks her to go out to dinner with him. We learn at this time that, because before she wouldn't drink and now she's drinking straight whiskey and she's just life has hardened her up a bit. Vita is now singing and dancing at Monty's club there on the boardwalk or on the pier. Which, of course, this doesn't seem to bother her either. Maybe this is just a front she's putting on when she talks to Mildred. But her freedom seemed like it was more important than money. I don't know. She's she's a very interesting character to me. I really like her because all these things that she's unhappy about with her mom doesn't seem to bother her quite as bad when she's on her own. So maybe she just Hmm. needed to be on her own for a while. Mildred tries to get her to come home and she says basically that she's not. I'm on my own now unless you can give me the things that I want and you can't Hmm. give me those things. Mildred goes to Monty and says, I want to marry you. And he tells her basically that the only way that he'll do that is if she gives him a third of her business so that he is making his own money and doesn't have to take money from her anymore, which she agrees to do. They get married. She redecorates his family house. 
which is a really cool house. I like it. I mm-hmm. didn't yeah. look up to see where that house is or anything, but I think it would be a cool place to go see if it is still there. And life seems to be, you know, going along okay, other than the fact that she's just hemorrhaging money to keep Vita and Monty happy. And she doesn't seem to be happy at all, even though Vita, you know, has come back to live with them. And she basically has what she wants except not really because she kept trying to buy Vita's love and it's a fake love that Vita has as long as she keeps her in the money that she wants and the stuff that she wants it all seems okay but it's just not real and this just keeps bringing us closer and closer to finding out what actually happened on the night of this party I think Is it Vita's birthday party? I think it is. I think it is. Mildred's not able to be there because she's in this business meeting where basically Wally is taking the business away from her. Monty wants to sell his third. Kind of what I gathered is that Wally is buying his third. He's going to allow Mildred to manage the business, which is awful kind of him, but she's not in charge of it anymore. Because she's just like used up all her money pleasing those two. And she she calls the house and finds out that the party's over. Monty went to the beach house. And when she gets there, she sees him and Vita kissing. Which is the scene where I'm like, okay, yeah, how old is she? Is this... I mean, well, because even if she is 18, she said it's been going on since before they got married. So he was definitely having an inappropriate relationship with her. But she has this gun that she had found that belonged to her first husband. And she pulls it out, ends up dropping it on the floor because she's not going to kill him. At this point, I think she's been beaten down so much that she's just kind of resigned that nothing is working out for her. And Vita tells her that Monty's going to divorce Mildred and marry her. And at this point, you know, Mildred leaves. Like I said, everything just is falling apart for her right now. She goes out and she's sitting in her car and that's when we hear the shots. And we find out that Vita was the one who shot him because he told her that he wasn't going to marry her. He doesn't know what gave her that idea. I guess being turned down, she just couldn't stand that. She's gotten to a point where she's so used to getting whatever she wants that not getting it leads her to commit murder. So Mildred runs back in and sees what happened. This is then where we meet back up with what we saw in the very beginning how she uh covers it up and then goes to the pier and gets wally and what the police needed to know was what time she left the meeting which was eleven forty-five. they n- know what time the murder was committed wait yeah yeah they know they know the time and they know that um it couldn't be her couldn't be mildred they do they bring in vita and basically she admits it well because vita says you said you weren't going to tell anybody you said you would take care of it and so she just she had to kept her mouth shut as they're leading her away because Mildred Mildred was going to go to prison for her she said that she was going to take the blame yeah as they're leading Vita away Vita just tells her don't worry about me mother I'll be fine Mm -hmm. right (laughs) <laughs> no remorse, no fear. I'll I'll be fine. One interview that I heard somebody said, oh, Vito will be running the prison in a few months. Probably so. But yeah, so 
Mildred Pierce. Yeah, well, and, and again, we're going back now to uh, film noir territory as we wrap everything up, and we find out that, um, you know, Vita is going to, or at least we think she's going to get what's coming to her. Again, we don't know if she's going to be tried as a as an adult, as a, as a juvenile. She doesn't seem very concerned about it. It's interesting that at the end, you know, Mildred's first husband comes back, and, you know, maybe they're going to be able to make another go at it. Uh, there seems to be some hope for, for the future. Uh, one of the things that I think is really, really interesting is, and I think Imogen Smith also points this out again, the, one of the last scenes that we see is we see her walking out of the um, Hall of Justice and there's these women scrubbing the floors at the Hall of Justice, you know, making sure everything is, is squeaky clean. Uh, you know, these women are just, you know, working themselves to death like Mildred did. Uh, so it kind of comes full circle uh, at the end of the film there. But yeah, we can we can talk more about um, some, some of the after after. So like we said earlier, neither one of us have read the book but I do want to read it, but I thought it was interesting that it said that the book is more of a psychological work with little violence, mm -hmm. and that in the novel, Monty doesn't die and Vita never goes to jail. It's hard for me to imagine like what this story is without the murder part of it, because it's such a big part of it. How does the story end? What does what happens in it? So I'm very curious. It's probably one I'll have to pick up very soon now. Take care of that curiosity. I'd like to take a look at it too. I, apparently there was a lot more, from what I've read, there's a lot more critiques of class and money that are that are toned down for the movie. And you'd mentioned that you'd read a couple of Kane books as well. I'd read Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings twice, which those, as I mentioned before, were really toned down to be able to get past the production code. But they, the screenwriters also figured out how to keep the sexual aspect of those books rising to the top without losing the uh, the power of the female protagonists, which are both enormously strong in that book. But I, I thought it was really interesting that, um, you know, the screenwriter that's credited for this is uh, Renald McDougall, but actually William Faulkner worked on it for a bit, and Catherine Turney actually wrote two different versions of the script, and I think one of them was a little bit more toned down and may have been more faithful to the novel. Um, she really didn't want Jerry Wall to turn this into a murder mystery. She was afraid that the, the dramatic intent uh, that was in the novel was going to get lost. All of the writers that contributed to this and Curtis really shaped this into really just cinematic gold. It really, really, and you're, you're probably going to talk about this, but it really did a, a great bit of business at the box office. I think it was nominated for like five or six Oscars. Of course, Crawford won. And, you know, it still packs a punch now, 70 years later, just as much as it did um, when it was first released in 1945. I agree with that completely. Looking on IMDb, there was a lot of uncredited people who contributed to this script. I was very surprised at just how many people were listed that were uncredited. But that's interesting to learn a little bit more about like the different drafts and stuff. So in 1996, the movie was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant and was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress National Film Registry, which I agree with that decision. Me too. It was a big box office success. I think it was really interesting. Did you watch the trailer that was one of the special features on the DVD? I don't think I saw the trailer. I watched most everything else, though. So I watched the trailer because... 
that one of the interviews had mentioned it. The trailer, while yes, it has like scenes from the movie and it does talk about it, the way the trailer makes you think what is going to happen is not at all what happens in the movie. So I thought that was very interesting. And of course, one of the big ad slogans for it was, don't tell anyone what Mildred Pierce did. Mm -hmm. Well, she didn't do anything. Uh, but you don't figure that out until you've already paid your money and seen the movie. <laughs> One of the things I also read was that they did this movie like Psycho, where um, movies were run on a loop and you just kind of went in whenever and sat and watched it and then caught mm. the beginning later. This one, they didn't do that. So after the movie started, they didn't let you in, I guess, not to spoil the ending. One little interesting tidbit that I always think about when I watch this is Zachary Scott, he had a house in Austin and there is a regional theater here named the Zachary Scott Theater. So I always think that's fun. Oh, they had to get permission to shoot on the beach in Malibu from the U.S. Navy because of wartime restrictions. And this, this I think is really fun. Apparently after seeing the movie, James M. Cain sent Joan Crawford a signed edition of the book that said to Joan Crawford who brought Mildred Pierce to life just the way I always hoped she would be and who has my lifelong gratitude. Very nice. So that's pretty cool because most of the time, you know, authors a lot of times are not happy with the movie adaptations. So I was glad to hear that he was. I think he was pretty forgiving uh, about that because I know when doing some research for Double Indemnity and I think also for um, Postman Always Rings Twice, he he saw the films and he thought, uh, wow, I wish I'd written that better. I wish I'd written what you guys did for the screenplay. <laughs> I think Kane was a good writer. I don't think he was a great writer, uh, but I think he was a good writer and had a lot of good ideas. But I think the screenplays made those stories a little bit stronger, uh, at least cinematically. I definitely agree. I've also read Double Indemnity and I've seen the movie several times. And then I've read The Postman Always Rings twice. And I've seen the one with Jack Nicholson. I haven't seen the older Mm -hmm. version of it. And yeah, I, I think the movies are a little bit stronger than the books are. But I still really enjoyed the books, so Mm -hmm. definitely check those out. Yeah, they're good. I think this is fun, too. I haven't seen this episode, but um, in the 10th season of The Carol Burnett Show, they did a bit called Mildred Fierce with Carol Burnett as Mildred and Vicki Lawrence as Vita and Harvey Corman as Monty, which I'm going to have to look that up because I just love Carol Burnett. I used to teach it at an after-school program. We were learning about, like, comedy. I was working with fourth and fifth graders and I showed them the Carol Burnett Sunset Boulevard sketch. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, those kids just <laughs> loved that. And the great thing about that is you don't even have to have seen Sunset Boulevard to enjoy it. And, and probably yeah. this one either. I, I think I saw this one when it first aired, so that was a long time ago. But they're, they're so much fun. Just a couple of really quick things, and, and you probably saw it. There's an extra on the Criterion Blu-ray with uh, Anne Blythe, and Eddie Muller is interviewing her, and she's so nice and so sweet. You just can't imagine her playing somebody like Vita. You know, she's she's such a really sweet lady, and, uh, you know, she she has good memories of that, that shoot, although she was, you know, she was so young, 16 or 17, when the movie was in production. She said that Joan Crawford was really, really nice to her, that Michael Curtiz was very nice to her, much nicer than he was to Joan Crawford. It's a really good interview, and, and I think the the best part, if you, I would encourage people to buy the Criterion Blu-ray of this. 
uh, if for no other reason is because on this special feature, you get to hear the Noir City San Francisco crowd react to the scene where Vita and, um, you know, the slap fest that goes on between um, Vita and Mildred Pierce. Uh, there's not another crowd, and you know you know this too, Laura, because you've been there. There's not another crowd like the Noir City crowd in San Francisco. It's, um, it's, it's great. And that's a great little moment that they captured there. I was really excited about that interview because, yes, she was so nice. You never know what some of the, the older actresses are going to be like. You know, are they going to be nice or are they going to be kind of stuffy? Or But she just sounded like a person you would want to hang out with for a while. And then she also sings at the end, which was really mm-hmm. nice. She still has a, had nice. a really good voice. Um, I think that yeah. interview was done in 2006. Yeah, it's been a while. I don't know if that was like just a special screening or if it was at a Noir City Festival. I didn't know about it at the time, but I wish I could have been there. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> the reviews of this were mostly positive, And like we said earlier, it was a Big box office success. Variety in December of 44 said, It skirts the censorable deftly, but keeps the development adult in dealing with the story of a woman's sacrifice for a no-good daughter. High credit goes to Randall McDougall's scripting uh, for his realistic dialogue and method of retaining the frank sex play that dots the narrative while making the necessary compromises with the blue pencilers. The dramatics are heavy, but so skillfully handled that they never cloyed. Joan Crawford reaches a peak of her acting career in this pick, which I agree. Totally. The New York Times said, but somehow all Miss Crawford's gallant suffering, even with the Philip of murder mystery that was added to the novel by its screen adapters, left this specter strangely unmoved. Mildred Pierce lacks the driving force of stimulating drama, and its denouement hardly comes as a surprise, but it is cut from a pattern that has been hugely successful in the past, and it probably will be this time too. If you can accept this rather demanding premise, and there were not a few ladies in the Strand who were frequently blotting tears with evident enjoyment, then Mildred Pierce is just the tortured drama you've been waiting for. So they didn't care for it too much. Is that sounds like Bosley Crowther? I bet uh, that's him. I think it might have been. It didn't have the author list. A lot of newspapers have started to try to digitalize their um, back stuff, but it didn't have the name listed because I usually try to pull the critic's name. Historian June, I'm so bad with name pronunciations, Sochen, S-O-C-H-E-N, argues that the film lies at the intersection of the weepy and independent woman genres of the 1930s and 40s. It accentuates common ground of the two. Women must be submissive, live through others, and remain in the home. Which, yeah, it does kind of feel like a lot of her punishment would this have happened if she hadn't have divorced her husband? What would have happened there if she hadn't have tried to have gone out and made it on her own? I do really like the fact that her husband, her first husband said, oh, I didn't think you'd be able to make it without me. And you did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of things that I really like about this movie me too what rating would you give this we usually do an a through f rating i think i would definitely give it an a i i don't think it quite gets as much love as a film noir 
because as we mentioned before, some see it as a drama or a women's picture more than they do a film noir. Uh, as we've talked about, it certainly has elements of both, which makes it a little tougher to nail down. But I think it's clearly film noir. And I think when you've got you've got people like Joan Crawford, Michael Curtiz, and the supporting cast is is all great. You know, Zachary Scott, Jack Carson, and Blythe. I mean, everybody, uh, Eve Arden, everybody is solid all the way through from top to bottom in this film. So, um, yeah, for me, it's an A. Yeah, I definitely give this one an A, too. It's just, it's strong all the way through from the script to the acting to the filming. There's not really any point in it where I'm like, eh, not sure about that. I know a lot of people had problems with the relationship between Mildred and Vita like oh a mom wouldn't actually give up all that for her daughter or if somebody treated you like that you wouldn't still keep trying to earn their love but but that's a story that you hear a lot both from children and parents if the love is rejected then you spend a lot of time trying to get it very toxic relationship but that's not unheard of and I don't think anything that she does is really out of character for her now if they had have set it up where you know she didn't favor the kids or anything like that and then all of a sudden she had done all this for Vita yeah that would be but they set it up from the very beginning where she says the kids are more important than you or I and I'll do anything for them yeah they, they really do it is consistent with itself the characters are consistent with themselves. So, uh, yeah, you really can't say, oh, this character wouldn't have done that. You know, maybe the person watching it wouldn't have done that. But uh, Mildred definitely would have done that. I mean, she's she's that way from the beginning. She tells you who she is. She shows you who she is. And um, it's all there on the screen. Yeah, like you said, anybody who has problems with it, I think it's because they have a they can't identify with that. But you don't have to identify with the character as long as they're consistent in their beliefs and what they do, then, yeah, there's no reason that they wouldn't do that thing. Just everybody go see Mildred Pierce. You will be glad you did. Okay, so yeah, we always offer recommendations after somebody has watched this. What should they read or watch next? Yeah, so I have a couple of films to recommend if you liked Mildred Pierce. For me, I would recommend a movie called No Man of Her Own from 1950. Not the 1932 movie with Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, but this No Man of Her Own is a criminally underseen film noir starring Barbara Stanwyck, and she plays an unwed pregnant woman whose only hope of survival is to assume the identity of a dead woman. Uh, Really, really terrific film. Um, So that one is on DVD. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. And if you'd like more Joan Crawford, I would recommend any of the several films that I mentioned earlier that she made right after Mildred Pierce. I particularly like Possessed from 1947. Joan plays a nurse to the wife of a wealthy man who's played by Raymond Massey. Joan falls in love with the man, but there are lots of complications. It's um, it's a very psychological movie, and you know that was the time when you were getting a lot of psychoanalysis. It was in a lot of pictures at that time, and this really takes advantage of that. It also stars Van Heflin in a really really great performance. So that's um, Possessed from 1947 and No Man of Her Own from 1950. I haven't seen either one of those, and thank you. I will be taking those recommendations and watching those soon. Good. You'll have to let me know what you think. So I'm going to go with a, something totally 
tonally very different, but with the mom who is willing to do anything for her child. And I'm going to recommend Prevenge from 2016. It's written, directed, and starring Alice Lowe. And it's about a pregnant widow whose partner died in a climbing accident, and she believes her baby is guiding her to exact murderous revenge on those involved in his death. This is one of those movies, like, it's not perfect. I think it was her directing debut, so it you can definitely tell that. But I just thought it was so much fun, and she did such a good job. The baby talks to her, eggs are on, and yeah, I just really enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, check that one out for another Mother's Day movie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andy. This was a lot of fun to talk to you about. You talked a little bit about it beforehand, but where can people find you on social media? Well, you can find me at my website is andywolverton.com, and I keep a blog there, mostly devoted to film noir. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at awolverton77, and I'm on Letterboxd as awolverton. And Laura, thank you so much for having me today. It's um, it's really great. I'm uh, again sorry we didn't get to see each other at Noir City. Uh, I wasn't able to go this past January, February, but I I'm gonna hold you to it i'm hoping that you are going to come to the dc festival yeah i would love to hang out with you yes definitely hopefully hopefully it's safe to do things again soon because not only did i only got to go to a few days of the san francisco festival this year so there's so many movies still to see also want to hang out with you also dc is one of the top places i want to visit here in the u.s because i've never been um, uh, so it's like three birds with one stone. This has to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna we're hoping it's gonna happen for for lots of people. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, and I hope the rest of your quarantine goes well. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Fems. Like us on Facebook at Fatal Femmes and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Fatal underscore Femmes. Have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemmespodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.